3 John, verse 1. John writes, and he says, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not write with ink and pen unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. To be a part of a healthy church body is not only a command that Jesus gives and something that is clearly revealed to be the will of God uh, in the Bible that he has for every one of us. But it's also an essential part of our spiritual development, our spiritual growth, and, and our health uh, spiritually as we progress in the things of God. We read in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the church was first birthed, in chapter 2, verse 42, that uh, famous verse that tells us what the pillars were or the staples of the early church meetings. It says that they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is communion, and to prayer. That, that, that the, the, um, Luke, the author of Acts, points out that these things were really the staples or the glue that made the church what it was. And you'll notice that the second thing on that list is that word fellowship or koinonia or the gathering of ourselves together, an essential and vital part of a healthy Christian walk. We read later in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we're told there by the author of Hebrews that we're not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And earlier in the same letter he had written that we're to uh, take the more earnest heed to that as we see the end times approaching so that we don't fall into the deceitfulness of sin. And so not only is it a command uh, and the revealed will of God that we be a part of a church, it's, it's for our own good. It's for our own health that God has ordained this to be so. Now, churches or assemblies or fellowships just like this one, 
come in all different shapes, sizes, and forms, as many of us are well aware. Every church has strengths and weaknesses. They're all very, very uh, varying and different depending on the culture that they're a part of, the people that are in them. Uh, Many different things make up the dynamics that make a church what it is. But one of those elements that that will shape a church and make it it thrive and, and make it living in what it is are its leaders. The pastors, the elders, the people that serve within that church are in large part going to set the tone for what is the spirit of that church and what are the church's strengths and what its effects are uh, in the world and in the society that it is um, uh, serving in. Now, one of the difficulties of being a part of a local church body, and we all know that there are difficulties in being part of a local church body, right? I mean, how many of us know Christians that don't go to church because they're fed up with the church? (laughs) How many of us have been Christians that don't go to church because they're fed up with the church? And I think we all can kind of relate to and understand that temptation and that feeling uh, and that desire to want to maybe withdraw or set distance. The problem with that is that to do that means that we're disobeying what God's will is and we're doing it to our own detriment and to our own hurt. But part of the challenge of being in a church body is that it is under the direction of human leaders. Yes, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and he's the one that governs, ordains, and guides. But human leaders are a definite God-ordained ingredient in the equation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said that God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how those things build us up so that we're then able to serve and pour out according to the giftings and graces that God has given to us. And so human leaders are a reality in this fellowship life that we've been called into, part of being the church. Now, at the same time, that God has ordained human leaders over the church. He has also given us a warning concerning human leaders over the church. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, when the Apostle Paul was talking to the elders in the church in Ephesus for the last time, Paul gave to them this warning. He said, For this I know, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of or from your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So Paul gave this warning to a church that he would be leaving for the last time under the care of some relatively new believers. And he said, yes, you have a responsibility to lead and to guide in the body of Christ. But you must also understand that not everyone who sets them forth to be a leader called by God is necessarily appointed by God or ordained of God. And so you'll have to exercise discernment. Jesus gave similar warnings many times in his teachings. He said, especially in the last days, that many false prophets and false teachers would arise, saying all the right things and being very deceptive, very slick, and very smooth, to the point where they would be able to deceive even those that were sincere and genuine Christians. 
And so, yes, there are leaders, but there's also a warning. We must be discerning and not just trust that just because someone's in the front or holding a Bible or looks legitimate, that that means that they absolutely necessarily are. You say, okay, so I'm called to be a part, but I'm also called to take caution. My goodness, how do I do that? Sometimes it seems easier just to stay home, watch it on the internet, read my Bible, and just have a relationship with God. Problem again, that's disobedience to God. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3, Moses wrote by the Spirit of God, and he said that there would be false prophets, that that would be a reality, and he gives us a reason why God allows it. You say, well, if Jesus is the head of the church, why does he allow there to be someone who's false? Well, Moses writes to us, and he tells us that we might be proved. Do you see that there in the verse? God has allowed it that he might prove us. Well, what does that mean? To prove means to refine, meaning that God's desire and design for us is that we would grow in our discernment and in our understanding so that we would know how to recognize what is real and legitimate and also what is fake and false. And so God allows false leaders in his church because it serves also to strengthen the body of Christ. It helps us. So what we see now as we come to 3 John the last thing that John has written before he goes home to be with Jesus is he gives to us here in this short epistle a profile of two different leaders. One is good and one is bad. And he does it for the purpose and the sake of equipping us and helping us to understand the difference. How do we recognize when someone is truly legitimately called of God, sincere in their purpose and motives, and when someone is false or when someone is detrimental or damaging to us. And so John gives us these two contrasting examples, one in this man Gaius, whom he mentions in the first portion of the letter, and then this man Diotrephes that he mentions in the second half of the epistle. And then he lays out the instruction of the whole letter before us in verse 11 when he just says to us this, very simply, he says, listen, brethren, follow what is good not what is evil. Very simple letter, right? Very simple to understand. So what does John give to us here in this? Now, the reason for John's writing of this is twofold. It's not just so that you sitting in a pew can recognize a leader, whether they're legitimate or not, but also that you might know what to aim for that you might have in yourselves an understanding of what the Lord is seeking to cultivate in your life so that you become more like one of these guys than like the other. Because both of these guys started out sitting in pews just like all the rest of us, right? And they became totally different types of people. So not only does this letter help us to recognize what is real and what is fake, it helps us to know how to pray in our own lives that we might become what is real instead of what is fake. And so he writes to us, and he begins now talking to us concerning this man, Gaius, and he answers the question, what does a good and a faithful leader look like? Well, this man, Gaius, whom we're introduced to, is not a stranger to New Testament writings. The first mention of this man is when he was baptized by none other than the Apostle Paul, himself. 
Paul tells us in his own testimony that there weren't very many people that he baptized. In fact, there were only two names that Paul could even remember of those that he had baptized himself. One was a man named Crispus. It's a great name if anybody's pregnant and looking for a baby name. Crispus, and the other one was this man, Gaius. And Paul says, besides that, I don't remember if I've even baptized anyone else. And so this man, Gaius, was baptized by none other than the Apostle Paul. That's where he got his start. Later on in his ministry, he became a travel companion with Paul. He went with him on several of his missionary journeys. And he was with Paul in Ephesus towards the end of Paul's last missionary journey when there was a great uproaring there that we'll talk more about later in our study tonight. And he even traveled with Paul once Paul was arrested and taken to Rome way later on in his ministry. And so Gaius was a companion with Paul and he was trained for the ministry under the tutelage and discipleship of Paul himself. We're told also here by John that he's a well-beloved man. He says that right in his introduction in verse 1. He says, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. Meaning that by this time, the time that John is writing this letter, Gaius had established a very distinct and noble reputation amongst all of the churches in New Testament times. He was well-beloved, meaning that he was known by the churches. He had been proven that he was faithful, and he was also trusted by the disciples. And so we have this man, Gaius, that's held up in front of us here. Now, one word of caution that I want to give to you before we look at what his marks of faithfulness were. If we take this letter as simply a photograph, a sketch of two different men that we can look at and observe their lives, then we'll miss the point completely. I believe that the Holy Spirit would have you and I tonight to let these two characters be a mirror in our lives, not a photograph. A photograph paints a picture of what was. A mirror reflects what we are. And ultimately, you and I are going to become like one or the other of these two. Would to God that we'd become like Gaius. Well, he tells us now what the marks of Gaius are. What was it about Gaius that made him a good and a faithful leader? He tells us in verse 3 that Gaius was a man who walked in the truth. Now, we learned what that meant in 2 John in our study last week. It meant that he was a man who was fully in Christ Jesus. He was depending on him, trusting in him for his salvation, his leading, and his prosperity. It also means that he was a man who was a man of the word, that he trusted in the word of God from start to finish, that he believed God's word to be the full revelation and he lived according to the word of God. And it also means that he was a man who walked in and was filled with the Holy Spirit because the spirit is truth. Gaius was a man who was committed to and who was walking in the truth. John also tells us in verse 5, concerning Gaius, that he was faithful in the ministry that he had received from the Lord. He tells us there, he says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatsoever you do, doesn't tell us what, he just says whatsoever it is, to both the brethren, that's the church, and also to strangers, that's the world. And that had become his reputation according to what he then says in verse 6. And so the testimony or the credentials that Gaius held is that he was faithful to do what God had called him to do with consistency, 
to faithfully fulfill his ministry to both the church and to the world. Now, one of the things that gives me great comfort as a Christian is that when the Lord measures our lives, whether they be successful or whether they be failing, he doesn't measure them based upon the fruit that we produce as much as he does our faithfulness to do what it is that he's called us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is defending his own ministry, he calls himself a steward over the word of God or over the mysteries of God. And he says there that the number one requirement in stewards is that a man be found faithful. In other words, what God is looking for in our lives when he assesses the quality of what it is that we live for and do, he's not looking for us to be absolutely successful in everything. He's not expecting that fruit is going to always be falling off the branches and that everything we do is going to be absolutely successful. But what he does measure and look at is our faithfulness to complete what it is that he's called us to do. Pastor Bobby shared with us this past weekend from Matthew chapter uh, 25 concerning the, the talents that Jesus gave to his servants before he went on a long journey. And when he settled accounts with them, he didn't say, well done, thou good and fruitful servant. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Be ruler over many. And so Gaius' claim to credibility in the eyes of John and for the usefulness of the church is that he was simply faithful to do whatever it is that he did. And John doesn't specify because every one of us is called to something else. So the question is, what has God put in your hand? What has God put in front of you? What are the gifts and the callings and the talents, the opportunities, the sphere of influence, the resources that God has placed in your disposal? And are you being faithful to use each of those things for his namesake to the best of your ability? That's the measure of success or failure in the eyes and mind of God. And Gaius held that. He was faithful in what God had called him to do. The third thing that John mentions in verse 6 concerning Gaius is his love. He says in verse 6 that um, he says, they have borne witness of your charity. The word charity is that word agape in the Greek. It's that word for love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is patient, kind, you know, and all of the rest. And so Gaius was a man not only faithful in his actions and duty, but he was a man who was filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the love of God towards the people of God. The fourth thing that John mentions concerning Gaius, it's also in verse 6, is that his service helped the progress of the saints. Notice what he says there. He says, whom, or the charity before the church, whom, if you bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, you shall do well. So the mission of Gaius, or the motive behind why Gaius was doing what he was doing, is that he wanted to see other Christians go forward in their relationship with Christ and in their influence for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. Notice that he uses the word bring there, that if you bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, you will do well. That Gaius was not a man who was a dictator who simply told others what to do, but he himself didn't do it. But Gaius was a man who was also going there himself. 
He was one who could say with Paul, follow me as I also follow Christ. He was going somewhere and he wanted to take as many people along with him as he could. He was growing himself and he wanted the people around him to be growing too. And he made that the motive and the mode of his service is that he was going to cause them to grow in a godly way. And then notice what it says concerning his ministry in verse 7. It says that because for his name's sake, they went forth. Now, who's they? They are the ones to whom Gaius was ministering. In other words, Gaius was reproducing what he himself was. That as he was aiding the progress of the Christians, he was then able to raise them up to a place of maturity where they were then able to go out and do the same thing that he was doing for them. So the fruit of Gaius's ministry is that he was reproducing carbon copies of himself and propping them up that they might also go forward. He was facilitating their growth, enabling them and equipping them to do the work, and then sending them out to do it. And it's a sketch of a faithful leader. And then notice what he says in verse 8 concerning Gaius. John writes to him and he says, We therefore ought to receive such, that is, we should receive those whom have been sent out and are now doing the work Why? That we might be fellow helpers to the truth. And the final thing that he says concerning Gaius's credibility and what made him a good leader is that his motive and mindset was not the expansion of his own ministry, but rather he wanted to be a pedestal upon which others could stand so that he could thrust them forward to be fellow helpers of the truth. He didn't look at one who was bringing people along under him, but rather he was one that wanted to come underneath them and that his life might be a stepping stone to thrust someone else forward. So John takes all of these things concerning this man Gaius and he holds him up for us as an example of what a good leader is in the body of Christ or just a good leader in general. These are the things that make a good leader. They walk in truth. They're faithful to their calling. They possess the fruit of love. They bring others forward in their journey, facilitating their growth and expansion and fruitfulness. And they're fellow helpers to the truth so that the purpose behind it might go forward in the things that God has called it to do. Now, what's the result of this type of leadership, the leadership of a Gaius? What happens when you have that kind of a leader over people? Well, we recognize, first of all, that the agenda of that type of leadership is to simply advance the truth to the glory of God for the well-being of others. That's a really good agenda, isn't it? I think that's about as good of a motive as anyone can have for doing what it is that they do, no matter what it is. To advance truth for the glory of God and the well-being of others. That's what Gaius did. And what that kind of leadership did and does is that it fosters fruitfulness in others. It enables people to develop and to grow and to become what it is that God has made them for and what they're called to be. 
That kind of leadership gives people the freedom to be who they are, to grow at their own pace because they don't have to be advanced or be perfect, but they're in God's hand for him to to build it in his time and in his way. And it gives them the freedom to be sincere because they're being loved into a place of fruitfulness, not suppressed into it or commanded or pressed into it. This kind of leadership brings out the absolute best in people because they feel accepted and they feel safe and then it reproduces itself and it's, it's successful in its agenda. And so Diotrephes, I'm sorry, Gaius was a man who's held up before us as a good leader and his fruit will be lasting and his fruit will remain. Now to contrast with that, John holds up another character for us, um, beginning in verse 9. This man, Diotrephes, who is also a leader of a local church body, but John has a completely different profile and character sketch to mention about this man, Diotrephes. Now, who was Diotrephes? We have no other mention of Diotrephes in the New Testament other than this verse and this mention here in 3 John. His name means, Diotrephes means, nourished by Zeus, or feeding on strength. Zeus was the Greek god of strength. And his name is a great reflection of the type of man that he was. He's the perfect picture of what we would call in the modern era a narcissistic leader, someone who receives and feeds on the strength of others. And John simply assesses the, the ministry and the service and leadership of Diotrephes with one word in verse 11. He calls it evil. <laughs> he says, follow not that which is evil. And so Diotrephes, before we even look at what he was and what he did, we see that he's a man who was an evil leader in his ways. So what were the faults of Diotrephes that made him the bad ruler or bad leader that he was? We're told there in verse 9, first of all, that he was a man who loved to have the preeminence. The word preeminence, it's a Greek word. It's actually fun to say. It's philoprotuo. Isn't that great? But it's a compound of two words, philo, which is love, and aprotuo, which means first place. So what it means is that Diotrephes was a man who loved to be in the first place. He wanted to be in the front. He wanted to be the prominent one. He wanted to be the most important, the highest one, the ruler and the leader. The word also means that he was ambitious for distinction. He was seeking greatness for the sake of greatness and for the sake of the advancement of self and self-reputation. Now, to pursue greatness or to desire to be great is normal is human, and is not condemned by God at all. God never condemns anyone for wanting to be great. God holds before us, from Genesis to Revelation, sketches, profiles, testimonies of great men and women. David was a great man. Daniel was a great man. Esther and Mary, great women of God. Greatness is not something that's condemned by God. But the motive method and reason for greatness makes a huge difference in whether or not that greatness is good or whether that greatness is evil. 
In Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27, we have a perfect sketch of good greatness versus bad greatness. It says, and this is towards the end of the ministry of Jesus, that there was also a strife or an argument among them, that is the 12 apostles. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? So there was a spirit of diatrophies that was flowing amongst the 12, even while they were still traveling with Jesus on the earth. And Jesus said unto them, his response to this competitive move towards greatness, he says that the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. For whether is greater, he that sits at meat down to the dinner table, or he that serves. Now in the worldly context, you would say him that sits at the table. But Jesus said, and Jesus confirms it. He says, is not he that sits at meat? But in contrast to that, Jesus says, I am among you as he that serves. Now, if you take Jesus and the 12 apostles and you line the 13 of them up in a row, who is the greatest among them? By far, it's Jesus, right? I mean, none of them could claim to be God. None of them could claim to have power to walk on water. Jesus was completely set apart, by far the greatest. And he says, in the kingdom of God, greatness is not measured by the one who sits in the chief place or who is the oldest or the most prominent but rather the greatest is the one who is the servant of all. Greatness in God's economy is measured exactly backwards from the way it's measured in the world. And the great one in the kingdom is the one who is humble and the one who is the servant of all. Jesus spoke again in the seven letters to the seven churches twice concerning a group of people called the Nicolaitans. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but that's kind of the prominent English pronunciation of that word. And he says of the doctrine and the deeds of the Nicolaitans that he hates it. It's one of the only times that Jesus says that he hates something. And the Nicolaitans were those that dominated over common people. It was the establishing of a priesthood, wherein those that served in the ministry were greater or on a different elevated level than those whom they were ministering unto. And Jesus said that he hates that spirit. It's the spirit of diatrophies. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, the apostle Paul says that the way of Christ in the kingdom of God is that in honor, we're to prefer one another above ourselves. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that the way to greatness is the way of humility. Jesus teaches emphatically throughout the New Testament that the way up in the kingdom of God, is to go down. The humble shall be the greatest. The servant and the youngest shall be the greatest in the economy of God. Someone who sets forth like Diotrephes, who loves preeminence and who wants to be in the chief place, is both a fool and one who lacks absolute understanding of Christ and the principles of the kingdom of God. He's a fool because he has no idea what it is that he's asking for. I mean, it's like a person who stands up in a room where there's 
a terrorist with an assault rifle and says, shoot me first. The person who stands up and says, I want to lead in the body of Christ. Because we have an enemy of our faith, don't we? Who's seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. And who's he going to take out? He's going to take out the easiest target. And when someone stands up and says, put me in the front, they become an easy target. It's a foolish place to be. And it's someone who doesn't understand the way of Christ or the rules of the kingdom of God. The second thing it says concerning Diotrephes and a bad leader is not just that he wants preeminence, but that he's also one who goes about prating, prating, I don't know how you say that word, with malicious words. That is, he's someone who's given to malicious slander or one who speaks evil of other people. So he speaks evil of other ministers, he speaks evil of other leaders, speaks evil of anyone whom he perceives as a threat or that he can use to prop himself up by making them look like less. What is evil speech? What is malicious speech or or prating words malicious? What does it mean? It means gossip. It means slander. It means backbiting. It means criticism. It means casting shadows on someone else's uh, um, reputation or place or responsibility or personality in some way. It's anything negative that a person would say about another person. And what John tells us here is that it's the mark of a bad leader, someone that will speak critical, negative, malicious words against someone else. The number one problem when you and I speak malicious words against someone else, no matter who it is and no matter how much we feel justified in what it is that we're saying, is that the second a negative word about another person crosses our lips and goes out into the open, we become unsafe people in the unconscious or the conscious mind of the person who's listening to us say those words. Because when we speak slanderously concerning someone, even if we do it in the most noble and political way it is possible, the person that we're speaking to makes a mental note that they could be the next one on your target when you're speaking to someone else. That if you're willing to say to me what you just said about that person, then that means that you're also willing to say something about me to someone else, and I immediately become defensive and put a wall up. And the relationship between the person who's leading me and me who's being led has been breached. There's been a wall that's been built up, and I no longer feel safe and secure, and there's security in this relationship where I can trust and follow, but there's been something that's been a rift there, and the check engine light goes on in my mind and in my spirit. Something is wrong. And it's a dangerous thing when a person speaks slanderous words against someone else, but it's the mark of a diatrophies. And it's something that he did, and John brings it out. He speaks malicious words against us and against others. The third thing that John says about Diotrephes and his faults is that he removes all others who have potential influence in his sphere or in his realm. John says that he did this not only to John himself and those that were brethren that would come from other places and seek to serve the church in Diotrephes' place, but that he would even kick out of the church those that wanted to listen to other ministers. So if someone came into the church and said, I was listening to the radio today and I was really blessed by the program I heard at, you know, 12 noon and the the pastor was speaking and he was saying these things. Diotrephes was so upset and, 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 and stirred up 
by the fact that someone was being blessed by another teacher, that he would kick them out of the church. In some way, he would cut them off because it was a threat to his own sphere of influence. I think the greatest example of this that we have in the Bible is King Saul that we read about in the Old Testament. He was the first king of Israel when the people had asked for a king and they had come to Samuel and asked, set a king over us that we might be like the other nations. And so God pointed out Saul, and the Bible says that he was head and shoulders above everyone else, that he was preeminent in his appearance and in his giftings and in his authority. And so God gave them the king that they desired. And Saul served in humility for a little while, but over time he was lifted up in pride and he became addicted to the praises of men and to the things that people said and thought and the power that he had. And when someone who was more talented than himself came on the scene, a young, ruddy man by the name of David, he couldn't handle the fact that there was someone who was more gifted than he was. He heard one day the women singing and saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And when Saul heard those words, the thought came into his mind, what more can he have but the kingdom? He's only one step away from having the crown. And so rather than employing the talent that God has raised up to propagate the purpose of God and advance the kingdom, Saul removed David from his presence and set him on the outside where he would have less of an influence and an impact for the purposes of God. Now, not only did Saul separate David, but when Jonathan, Saul's own son, sought to advocate for David and say, listen, you got David wrong. You should bring him in. He could be a help to you here. Saul took the spear that was in his hand and he threw it at Jonathan, his own son. He was so threatened at the prospect of losing his place that he would kill his own flesh and blood in order to preserve it. That's the spirit of Diotrephes. And it's what John condemns in a local church leader that was on the scene already in New Testament times. Diotrephes will always become protective of his sphere at whatever cost he has to. The agenda of a Diotrephes is far different from that of a Gaius. Whereas Gaius was the advancement of truth for the glory of God and the well-being of others, the agenda of a Diotrephes is always the advancement of self and the appearance of fruit. It doesn't matter if there's really fruit on the tree. As long as people think that there is, that's enough to satisfy a Diotrephes. What makes a person a Diotrephes? And here's where we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves the question, what am I truly in the eyes of God and before men. What makes a person a Diotrephes? The first thing that cultivates Diotrephes in someone is a love for the praises of men. To love the praises of men, to be elevated, to be well spoken of, to be had in reputation, to have their name in lights, to have their name in a newspaper article, or to be famous in some way, or have people love them. All, all of those things are the praises of men. And to love the praises of men cultivates a spirit of diatrophies. The problem with loving the praises of men is that you're forgetting two things, two very important things, if that's you. Number one is that at the end of the day, nobody else really cares about you. 
Nobody, even after you've done the most heroic and amazing thing for someone else's well-being, nobody, when they lay their head on the pillow at night, is thinking about how great and how wonderful you are. They're thinking about the fact that they want more ice cream, <laughs> or what they're going to do in the morning, or what everybody else is thinking about them, or whether or not the impression they made <laughs> towards whoever it is that they're impressed with was a good one or not. Nobody really cares at the end of the day about what you or I do for them. They just don't. We're forgotten as quickly as we're praised, and those praises amount to absolutely nothing. It's a completely worthless thing to be praised by people. I think of the Apostle Paul when he went into the city of Lystra. He healed a man who was crippled, and the people brought garlands and bulls to sacrifice to him to worship him as a god. I mean, it doesn't get any... Better than that, right? If someone thinks that you're a god. And, and Paul's response to that was he ripped open his clothing and exposed the scars on his body from the persecutions. Look, I bleed just like you. I'm just a man. The amazing thing is that no sooner were these people willing to worship the Apostle Paul that some little group of Jewish men came into the city of Lystra and said, he's a bad man. You shouldn't listen to him. And you know what they did? They dragged him outside of the city and they stoned him to death. They left him for dead. The same group of people that praised him killed him. God brought him back and his ministry wasn't over. But understand, to live for the praises of people is a complete and absolute waste. Just take it from King Saul. Do you know what he said on his deathbed? He said, I have erred exceedingly and played the fool. He lived for the glory that came from men and his life amounted to absolutely nothing. Man is totally inconsistent in what he gives forth and not worthy of the praise that comes off of his list. It's a wonder that God wants our praise, but he does. To seek the praises of men is an evidence of a lack of faith. Jesus said so in John chapter 5, verse 44. He was in a discussion with the Pharisees, and you know what he said? He said, how can you believe, that is, believe in God, who seek the honor that comes from men and not the honor that comes from God only? That's John chapter 5, verse 44. I see in my peripheral that it's not up on the screen, but you could write it down and look it up later. How can you believe that seek the honor that comes from men and seek not the honor that comes from God only? We should have an audience of one, one person one being that we're seeking to please with our lives, and that is God. And if we please every man in the world, every woman in the world, but we don't please God, our lives failed. And if we please God to the detriment of our reputation with every other person, we have led a successful life. But to love the praises of men cultivates the Diotrephes spirit. What else makes someone a Diotrephes is when their position in this life becomes their identity. Or their value as a human being is determined in themselves by their reputation or by what it is that they do. For the Christian, for the person who's blood-bought and belongs to Jesus Christ, the entirety of our identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. That's what I am. That's where my life is. That's where my value is. My value is in the price that Jesus Christ paid for my life. And aside from that, there is absolutely nothing. 
Paul would say, what do you have that you did not receive from him? Therefore, if you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? That is, that it was just some natural thing in yourself. No, everything that we are is in him. Therefore, our value is in him and from him. And when our value becomes in something else, well, my value is that I'm a teacher of the word of God. My value is that people like to hear me. My value is that I'm a good parent and I'm a good role model towards others. My value is that I run a successful business and people seek out my advice and counsel and use me as an example. My value is that I have a bit of wisdom and I can give counsel to others in the things that they come to me for. Whatever it is that we would place our value in outside of Christ is a foolish place for us to place our value. And it cultivates a diatrophy spirit. Listen, when we go to heaven... Every single one of us checks in our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Our authority, our gifts, our rule, our fruit, everything that we have done as a parent, as an employee or an employer or anything else, all of it is cast at his feet as we recognize he's the one that's enabled it. And so when our value and our identity is in Christ, we're in a safe place. When it's in our ministry, or our service, or our title, or our role, we're on our way to becoming a Diotrephes type of, le of, of uh, leader. The problem for a Diotrephes, a person that has this type of thing going on in them, is that everyone else knows that they have this problem except for the person themselves. They're the last ones to find out. The root sin of a Diotrephes is pride, right? And you know what pride does? The first thing that pride does when it takes root in the life is that it blinds its host to its presence. Meaning I can't recognize it in myself. Everyone else can see it, but I cannot. And so a person is a diatrophies and they don't even know it oftentimes. What's the result of diatrophies type leadership? What will a church look like that's led by a diatrophies? What will a family look like that's led by a diatrophies? What will a business or an organization look like that's led by a diatrophies? Well, first of all, instead of fostering fruit and bringing out the best, it fosters competition and strife amongst people. It establishes a pyramid and a pecking order, a hierarchy, and makes people nervous about their position, and everybody's seeking to elevate and climb and to seek the top position. It also fosters hypocrisy. Because in that environment, I'm no longer free to be who it is that I am or who I've been called to be. I must live to please the leader. If I get on his bad side, then I'm out and I lose all things and the house of cards of my life falls down. And so rather than being the best me that I can be, I've got to be the best me that he or she wants me to be so that I can keep peace around here. It suppresses the best in people. It forces people into a mold and everyone appeases, yields, and agrees with the leader because they know the consequences of what happens if they don't. Diotrephes creates an oppressive, lifeless atmosphere that crushes people. It crushes the human spirit. My daughter right now is in Europe. I know that's crazy. It's crazy for me to think about that, that I have a 15-year-old daughter who's in Europe right now, and she's on this discipleship mission thing that goes the whole summer long. And she's been on mission so far in Budapest, Hungary, and she's been on mission in Slovakia. 
And she was telling me yesterday that the difference between ministering in Budapest in Hungary versus the, the, the mission that they did in Slovakia. And she said in Hungary, where there's freedom and democracy, she said that people are so willing to listen. They come around and they hear music and they're engaged by it. They'll talk and there's life in their spirit and in their faces and they receive the gospel. And she said many people gave their lives to Christ when they did their outreach. She said they did the same thing in the city of Slovakia. Or did I say Slovakia or Slovenia? I never get it right. But she said in that city, she said the Iron Curtain just came down and communism is still fresh in the minds. They were underneath the rule of a dictator for so long. And their spirits are so crushed that they're not even moved when they hear the sound of music. Everyone is so into just getting where they need to go and accomplishing their task that there's no life in them at all. And she said there was very little fruit, very little outreach that could happen there because of the oppressiveness of the atmosphere that was there. A diatrophies will always weaken whatever it is that they are overseeing or whether they are over. The family, the business, the ministry, the organization, it will always grow weaker. Why? Because the strong are going to leave. They're going to recognize that they're being quenched and suppressed, and they're going to go somewhere else. And only those that are weak and need to have their hand held or need to be told what to do, only they will stay behind, and the organization will grow weaker and weaker and weaker. And so by way of application, as we close out our study tonight, looking at these two men, Gaius, the good and faithful, the godly leader, and Diotrephes, the preeminent, self-serving, self-willed, strong man. The question that I'm faced with is, which one am I? Because every one of us leads in some manner, shape, or form. Am I a Gaius, or am I a Diotrephes? Do I facilitate in the influence that I have, or do I dominate with the influence that I have? as a mother, a father, as a Christian employer or employee, as a church leader or a business owner? Who am I and how do I rule and how do I lead? Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, at least if I'm honest with myself, I have to say that there's a little bit of diatrophies in me. Probably there's a sliding scale, right? And every one of us falls somewhere in there. If we put Gaius on one end and Diotrephes on the other, we all fall somewhere in between. There's a little bit of diatrophies in every single one of us, more in me than I'd like. So the question is, what do I do with it? And if I sit here right now and I think, well, Gaius was baptized by Paul, the fruit was cultivated in his life, and he became a great man. I've been baptized. I'm being cultivated for something that God has for me, and my destiny is to be one of these or the other. And I don't want the influence of this diatrophies coming into my life or out of my life. Then what am I to do? How do I deal with the diatrophies that's in me? I think that the answer lies in the last man that Paul mentions at the end of this little epistle. I'm sorry, that John mentions at the end of this epistle. He gives a quick endorsement in verse 12 to this man, Demetrius. He says, Demetrius has a good report of the truth and of all men. And then he just closes the epistle. You say, why in the world does John give this one-line exhortation or um, endorsement 
of this man, Demetrius, at the very end. I mean, is that irrelevant? Is that inspired by the Holy Spirit? Or was that just an afterthought of John that got tucked into the Bible by accident? Because we have no idea who this man is. And you know what? If we have no idea who this man is, then maybe, maybe it is just an afterthought. It doesn't mean much in the realms of eternity. But if we take that name Demetrius and we put it into a Bible search, there's only one other man in the Bible named Demetrius, and he happened to live in the same city that John was a pastor in, the city of Ephesus. Who was Demetrius of Ephesus? Demetrius was the silversmith who was responsible for making the shrines to the goddess Diana and also responsible for starting the riot that caused Paul and his company to be thrust out of the city. He brought no small trouble upon Paul and upon the church and the work that was there in Ephesus. And I know I'm speculating just a little bit, but could it be that this man Demetrius, coming under conviction for his own sin and condition of his own lost state, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and now needs the endorsement of the Apostle John because the people were like, I'm not so sure about this guy Demetrius if he's really to be trusted. He's caused a lot of trouble to the churches. What it reminds us, whether this is Demetrius from Ephesus or not, what it reminds us is that God can save anyone and that God can change anyone. Listen, including Diotrephes. So if Diotrephes is in me, or maybe Demetrius is in me, and I'm one that's hostile towards the church, and I don't like Christians, what do I do with things in me that I don't want in me? Do I try harder? Do I say, thank you, God, for showing me, and I'm going to do better now. I'm not going to be Diotrephes anymore. Listen, good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you. What do we do with our sin? We bring it to Christ with contrition and repentance. We confess it, and we ask him to change us. And the only power in the universe that can is the power that comes when we do that. We say, God, there's things in me that I recognize tonight in our Bible study that have caused much damage in my life and my past. And if they continue, I hate to think about what the future will look like. And God forbid that I should end up like King Saul. And on my tombstone is inscribed the words, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And I ask you the question tonight in just closing this study, are you one that desires the preeminence? Are you one that finds value in your reputation and simply in what others think of you, with little concern for what God thinks of you? Are you one that speaks evil of others for any reason, in any context, at any time, no matter how innocent it sounds, and place yourself above them in so doing? Are you one that suppresses or have suppressed the people that are around you and make them fear you rather than to be inspired by you. Those are the marks of a diatrophies. And the way that we deal with that in our own heart is that we bring it to the Lord Jesus and we say, Lord, you tonight have exposed my heart. You've revealed things in me that are damaging to others and are detrimental to my future and my fruit. And I desire tonight, Lord, that if you're willing to lay these things at the foot of your cross, let your blood wash and forgive them, and let your spirit come in and change those things within my life. God, I am willing to be changed. That's how you and I respond to this, that we might become 
Gaiuses in the leadership of our children and our grandchildren and the things that God has called us into in this life and our place within the church. Father, we thank you tonight for this little letter and what it sets before us. We thank you for the picture of these two leaders and what they represent. And we thank you for the mirror that it provides to us tonight who read these words. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would search our hearts even now. O oh Lord, that you would look inside every drawer, that you would search out every motive, that you would reveal to us, Lord, where we've fallen short. And Father, we ask that you would help us. We pray that you change us from the inside, that we might become like Gaius, those that walk in truth, that walk in faithfulness, that possess the fruit of love, that bring others forward on their journey and facilitate their growth, and that we might become the pedestals that they might stand upon, that they might go further than we ourselves ever have been capable of. We thank you tonight for the example of John the Apostle and the words that he recorded. We thank you for the faithful men in the church like Gaius and others who have served throughout the centuries. And our desire and prayer tonight, O oh God, is that you would raise us up in this room of those that you would call good and faithful, those whom you would say that were well-beloved and of good reputation. And so make the changes that are necessary. Make us like your son. And may your truth advance for your glory, for the well-being of others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Tonight as we close the service, perhaps there's something in you that feels the need to respond. Something that needs to be laid at the foot of the cross. The altar's open, the front of the church. If during this last song you just feel as though you want to put feet to what God has done in your heart and just spend a couple of moments, even a couple of seconds up in the front, just laying it down and saying, God, change me. I need to be changed. I've made a mess of things in my life or in my family or even in my own heart. And God, I want to move forward in a different direction than the, what I was going when I came in here tonight. I would encourage you to do it, to take the step, take the walk, spend your moment, return to your seat and go forth and be blessed. Amen? Let's stand together, shall we?